if you don't know, it's 2024. In the 2024 Super Bowl, it's the 49ers versus the Chiefs. Does anybody remember when that, had, that matchup last occurred? 2020. So it's starting to feel a little bit like early 2020. Now, all of you are like, ugh. We'll find out March 16th if it's going to continue or right around then, right? But it feels a little bit like that. Now, it's not just that. If you look at the, the political nature of what's going on right now, it also starting to feel a little bit like 2020. Similar candidate, similar, same candidates from what it looks like. And this is also because there's a next, another election year up, upon us. Now, if years past are a taste of things to come, we may be in for quite a wild ride. Uh, at least in 2020, families were dividing over political lines. There was divisive rhetoric. It became the norm in our society. There was, I remember in high school reading about mudslinging and the political nature. It felt like it just ramped up, and now it's just the norm of what happens. Uh, in our society, there's domestic concerns about the economy, while, as we know, international tensions are on the rise. There's concerns within the church about the waning influence of God's people in all spheres of life. And in the midst of all of this, the church is called to make disciples and be on the mission of Jesus. But how, when all these things are around us, the tensions, the concerns, the divisiveness, the fears... How do we work to advance the gospel in our lives with the chaos culturally surrounding us? And it's with that that we dive into the book of Philippians. We do this by living as what Paul says in Philippians 3.20, as citizens of heaven. This is not the first time in history that the church has lived in the empire of the day. It's not the first time the church has had to battle the continual temptation of determining where we pledge our primary allegiance. It's not the first time that society has looked and called people to live very differently than the way of Jesus. And how we do that and the answer to that question will determine how you and I live this next year. And we do that, like I said, by diving into the series that we're calling Citizens, the joy-filled life in God's kingdom. Now, it's easy to think of Philippians. Whenever you hear that, for me, it always like comes up like, oh, a book of the Bible, right? Um, Aaron was showing me uh, his high school experience today of mem- ways in which they memorized the book of Philippians. And... This one was Ferdinand flipping Humble's something or other. Sure, right? There, but it's this book. We think of this, okay, it's, it's before this one, it's after that one. But what I want to do is I want to start this by re- helping us see, like, these were actually a group of people that was very much like you and I. Like, this was the Philippians that Paul was writing this letter to were everyday normal people just like you and me. So we find the birth of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to actually invite you to do that. And I'm just going to kind of speed read that story for you or speed tell you that story. 
So in Acts chapter 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey. It's the year AD 51. So about a little under 20 years after Jesus's death and resurrection. So he was going on um, a trip to um, Asia Minor, or he was in the Middle East, excuse me, and God told him, hey, don't go there. I want you to go in this spot. So he's with two, two, three of the people, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Remember, Paul always traveled in a group. He was always with other people. And when he was with other people on his team, good things happened. When he was by himself, churches weren't planted. But he was with others, churches were planted. Just remember that for a little bit. Okay. So he's, his first stop in what we now call Europe. So Philippi is what we now call Europe, part of the Roman Empire. It was a colony, a Roman colony called Philippi. Now this was a city that was considerably important in the ancient world. So Paul goes to this really important city named Philippi. And his, his normal operating procedure is to find a synagogue and go share with the Jewish people that the Messiah, their, the Lord, has come. Well, Philippi has such a small Jewish population. There's not even a synagogue there. There needed to be 10, 10 men for there to be a synagogue. There was not even a synagogue. So you can imagine small Jewish population. So what they do is they go outside of the city and they go to a river. And at the river, they find the, this women's prayer meeting take place. Now, in that, he joined the prayer meeting. He shares with them the gospel. He finds this receptive audience. And the first Christian congregation in Europe ever was born. So here's who it was made up of. One of the women, women was named Lydia. Lydia was a business owner. She was a woman of means. Uh, it calls her a, a dealer in purple cloth. Okay, So she was well off and she was described as a God-fearer, which means that she was a Gentile, not Jewish, but she was um, open to and for the Jewish God or the, and the Jewish faith. Through their preaching, God opened her heart and she be, started to believe. Now, her entire household came to faith. And when you think household, don't think husband and children. In the ancient world, household were all those people in your sphere of influence. Because she had some means, it probably meant her employees. It probably meant those that worked for her. It meant her family as well. But it was her oikos. It was an extended family up to 20-ish or so people, depending. So they all came to faith. Also, in verses 16 to 24, somebody else came to faith. It was a slave girl. She, uh, this slave girl was tormented by demons. Paul, led by the Spirit, cast these demons out of her. Um, she brought her oppressive owners a profit from her fortune telling. So she was aligned with a way of life that brought other people money. She was delivered and she no longer wanted to do the things that brought this people money. How do you think that goes? Not very well. Right? So what happens? The, the owners took Paul and Silas 
to the people in charge, the magistrate, and they had Paul and Silas beaten and thrown in prison because of this. I like our judicial system a little bit better than that. Right? Okay, so then Paul and Silas in jail, they start praying and singing hymns while they're in jail. You know, because that's exactly what you and I would do. God shook the earth and the heart of the Philippian jailer that came to faith just from the simple expression of joy in the midst. So this Philippian church, the first church ever in Europe was made up of Lydia, who was an Asian wealthy God fearer, a slave girl, likely poor in spiritual turmoil from Greece and a Roman jailer, a blue collar worker with little spirituality. Right? Everyday normal people. This is the Philippian church. There's probably others involved. We'll be introduced to two other women that were part of this church that were likely friends at one point, but then they started to be divisive and they were leaders in the church and their divisiveness was starting to bleed into how the church was functioning. But we're talking a church of a couple dozen people. We're talking of a church that was formed because of the proclamation of the gospel, all different walks of life, all different spiritual experiences, all different economic backgrounds, all different ethnic backgrounds, and all of that coming together under the preaching of the Lord Jesus. The eth- so here, Paul, still in jail, the authorities eventually asked Paul to leave. And Luke, you know, the gospel writer, Luke, the doctor, Luke is left in charge of the congregation. And Paul leads to another city in Macedonia that you may have heard of called Thessalonica, which is where we get the Thessalonians, book of Thessalonians from. They're close together, but both in Europe. So here now, Paul, years later, is writing this letter to this church that he helped, that he helped plant, that he was God used to start. And this is what he's writing to them. And Paul is now writing this letter from jail. Not the same time in jail. This is years later. He's likely in Rome. And what does he tell them over 20 times to think about? What is a word that finds itself being repeated 20 times in this short passage? It's this idea of joy. Now, there are better environments for Paul to write about joy from. I could think of Hawaii, for instance. It's probably a little bit easier to think about joy as you're sitting on the beach of Hawaii looking at the sunset. That's, going, that's a natural environment to bring you joy. Like, oh, joy's easy here. Got that one down. Paul's in a Roman prison. This is not a luxurious thing. This is like a stone cave. And while he's in prison, while he's writing to a church that's likely in suffering, which we'll talk about, he's telling them to rejoice. He uses joy-related words about 20 times. He gives thanks with joy for their partnership in verse 5, 1 to 5. He rejoices because Christ is preached. 
and the community prays for him in verse 118, he rejoices over and over. One theologian says this, and I love this. He says, like a mighty river surging through solid rock, joy flows from this letter through the suffering community of believers, giving them love for one another and the peace of God. Joy is like a mighty river surging through a solid rock. This congregation is experiencing similar opposition to what Paul had. They are suffering. They have threats to them. There's internal strife stirring. There's outside pressure from the the city about how to live. And what does Paul tell them to do? Rejoice. Experience joy. And as I've been reflecting, joy is one of those really, really interesting characteristics. Now, we often speak of joy in comparison to happiness, right? And and this is in the sense of this, like happiness is circumstances based and joy is non-circumstantial. Like you just have it. And I think that can be helpful. Um, I mean, just think of it like this, Paul, it's true for him. He's in jail. That's not a circumstantial experience of happiness. There's no reason why his current experience, thinking of his baby church that is now suffering, his circumstances should not lead him to joy. Their personal circumstances should not lead them to joy. And so while it's helpful to think of joy and um, indifference to happiness, as I've been thinking and I think of our context, I think, um, and this has been my, a little bit of my reflection on this a bit. I want to compare joy not to happiness, but I want to compare it to excitement. Excitement. Because I think when we think of our lives and we think of our day, there's this chasing after joy. And I see it a lot um, in the chasing after joy through excitement and pleasure. And you see this a lot in what I call FOMO or FOMO experiences. So FOMO, you may have heard before, fear of missing out, right? You have a hard time saying yes to things because, or you don't know what, it it makes you decision fatigue, you don't really go with it because you don't want to miss out on something, right? You you see all of your friends on social media having this good time and you're like, oh, I don't want to miss out on that. That looks like a, a really good time. It's really, really prominent more in Gen Z. I've coined another term that I call FOBO. And, I call, and that's why I think our culture has such a hard time RSVPing to anything. It's because it's what I call fear of better offers. Because why would I say yes to something three weeks in advance? Because that last 24 hours, I make it invited to something else. And if I say yes to this, then I'm obligated and I don't want to say no to what may come. But I'm not the only one here, right? Phobo. It's like, oh, that sounds awesome, but something may better come along. It's this lack of commitment. It's this, this oh, but this is fantastic, wonderful, great, but something better may be there. I think this is a chasing after joy. This is a, 
man, I want to have the most optimal 100% experience that I've ever had in my life. I, uh, this has to be the best of the best option. And if it's not the best of the best, because the best of the best is the only thing that's going to be the most joyous experience. If it's not the best of the best, I'm just not going to commit to that. Hopefully something doesn't come along, my friend, because I want to, right? And I think this is trying to experience joy. And as I've reflected on joy, I don't think joy is this high and low roller coaster, like sporadic excitement. Because excitement tends to be that, right? There's these really, really high highs. It's fun. It's high adrenaline. It's, It's... Yay! But I think joy is more the steady, consistent. And I think joy has a contentment that comes with it. It's not chasing a next excitement. Because I think joy is stable because it's found in Christ. Joy is something that I've been wrestling with in my own discipleship. As I was um, finishing up my most recent day of solitude, um, and days of solitude are extended times of prayer, um, reflection, I journal. It's like just a long prayer time for me in essence. And I couple my like monthly type counseling type on right after that because it just seems to be like God working. So why not couple those two together? And during that time, I started reflecting on my Um, I don't know what it was, but reflecting on my experience with joy, my relationship with joy. Um, Because I see other things as more important than rejoicing in joy. Like my tend to is if there's like responsibility and stuff to get done versus joy, I'm going to pick getting stuff done. Like that may sound fun, but no, 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 there's. There's too much good to happen in the world. We got to get after it. Now, some of you are going to be the exact opposite of me. You're like task list versus excitement. You're going to pick excitement. This is my experience. Okay. So I tend to not go to joy because I look, I tend to go to, Hey, there's, there's things that need to be moving forward. There's things that need to accomplish. And so some of that is because I've been surrounded in my life by people who do the opposite of me and I have to view, and this is my own working and my own discipleship I'm inviting you into. I've had to be the water that fills in the gaps. So other people get to experience joy. Well, they can experience joy. I'm gonna do the work so they get to experience joy. You see that? So my job is to do this so that others can do that. And almost like I don't, and this is the processing I've had to work through. Joy is something else that others get and I'm destined to obligation. Okay? And so I've had to, and I'm also married to one of the most joyful people I know. Right? She's just, I mean, her middle name is joyful for crying out loud. Like, if names don't matter. So, in my broken discipleship, my, or my broken view of the world, 
I'm like, okay, she gets to be the joyous one among us. I'll fill in the blanks and do the other stuff. And I hope you are like, man, that's kind of sad. It is. That's not, that's not joy that comes from Christ. That's obligation. Now, do I think that we should live up to obligation? Yes, of course I do. I've gone to the other extreme of excitement, though. If excitement is this joy, like the chasing after joy, the FOBO experience, I've gone to the, ah, that'll come around. Let's get this stuff done. And neither of them are what Paul calls the Philippian church to. That's not a joy-filled life. That's not an experience where you're so content with the gospel. You're so amazed by what he's done. You have every reason to look at what he's doing in life as something that's worthy of celebrating and being joyous around. That's a joy-filled life. Not chasing excitement, not based on circumstances, not even the opposite as if joy is something that's secondary or joy that comes later in life after you do all this hard stuff. Not none of those compared to what does it mean to experience a life filled with joy because of what Jesus has done for you. And that's what Paul's calling them to. External pressures, internal frustrations. We, and this is the joy that he's reminding them of. And that's what we need to experience in our day as well. This content joy. This experience of a reminder of all that God has done for us. And it does not... And, and this is my also broken worldview in ways. Jo- what Jesus has done for us... V- does result in a joyful life experience. I tend to, like you've, you know my flaw, I tend to be works oriented. So, okay, Jesus has done this, now let's get after it. And what if it's like, yeah, Jesus has done this, and now he wants to so fill your life with joy and, and fullness with him that it will flow, the things that he calls you to, his presence will just naturally flow from you. What if that was the option? Sign me up for that. I think that's what Paul's partially inviting us to. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we're going after, a joy-filled life. Now, if we're going to understand this joy-filled life, we also have to see how the place we're in affects that joy. Our external circumstances, our external uh, experience impacts this. Um, Before I dive into this next part, in September, there was a TikTok viral um, something, I don't know, viral moment. And it was, and I'm going to ask the men this for a moment, because this is what they did in this viral TikTok thing. They asked men, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? And the majority of men said, a lot. They're like, every day. And, it, and the viral experience of this were women being like, what do you mean you think about the Roman Empire? 
Like, I'm thinking about the kids. I'm thinking about dinner. Uh, like, all these different, like, realistic things is what it came down to. We were at a, a party, and one of the, uh, our friends asked this question. We're sitting around it, and I'm sitting there like, you know, I kind of think about the Roman Empire kind of often. Like, I'm in the Bible a lot. It's in there. And I say, yeah, probably often. And she's like, you're one of them. I'm like, I guess I'm one of them. I, I think of the Roman Empire. Why I say that? What I'm about to go into is going to fill your quote of today. If you, if you think about the Roman Empire every day, this is your only chance to do it because I'm going to give you some Roman Empire history because it's important. Okay, so Mark, Antony, and Octavius. How long has it been since you've heard those names? Let, follow me, okay? We're in the year 42 BC. The, two, the guys that killed Julius Caesar near the pla- on the plains near... Uh, Philippi in 42 BC, that's when it became a Roman colony and it was a home for the discharged Roman army veterans. Okay? So after this civil war took place, or before the civil war, there was this hey, all these Romans that fought in these wars, they said, hey, there's this beautiful land over in Philippi. Because you fought so well, we're going to start to give all you army veterans this land over here in Philippi. So later on, three guys, Antony, Octavian, and Lepidus, ruled Rome as a triumvirate, which is three dictators. Antony was in cahoots with Cleopatra. You heard that name before. Okay? He called that guy, Caesarian heard that word before, as the legitimate heir of Julius Caesar. This created an uproar. It led to a civil war. Um, One guy beat Octavian in 31. And when he was uh, brought in to Philippi, he was welcomed as a savior who restored peace and security to the Roman Empire. As the savior... He brought what's called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. This was created by Augustus. It enabled social economic recovery in contrast to the times of distress during the Civil War. Now, in Philippi, remember Philippi, the place where all the Roman foreign veterans went. This became a mini Rome. More Roman soldiers were given land. Um, Since it was a Roman colony, the citizens of Philippi enjoyed all the privileges of the Roman citizens. They did not have to pay taxes to Rome, and they were governed under Roman law. Philippi itself looked like Rome. If you were just an ancient person and you had been to Rome, you would have walked into Philippi and be like, whoa, are we in Rome? What's going on here? They loved Rome. They were aligned with Rome. All these people fought for Rome in their civil war. They wanted Rome to flourish. And part of Roman flourishing meant The imperial cult, which was the worship of the emperor, that was most prominent in Philippi. They had huge altars, temples dedicated to the emperor, and the city's religious life was centered around worshiping the emperor. Here's the big piece. As they worshiped the emperor, what did they call him? Lord and Savior. 
Hmm. Now, thinking of a Roman citizen in a Roman colony where you would be surrounded by people who would regularly consider Caesar or the Roman emperor to be God, you would regularly call that God Lord and Savior. Listen to what Paul says again in, first, uh, in Philippians 1, 27. L- only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Pause. The word manner of life is polite. You know what that means? Citizens. So what he's saying is, let your citizenship or let your life be your manner of life as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether you are see or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in your spirit with one mind striving side by side for the gospel. And then again, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is a political statement. He's, he is reframing everything that these Philippians would be experiencing in their life. What Paul is claiming is Caesar is not Lord and Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior. The one who you think brings peace and has a way of life that leads to prosperity and the way in which this entire world exists in the Roman Empire. You, you Philippians are being formed by your surrounding experience. You need to remember that's not your primary allegiance. You're a citizen of heaven, which means that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. The citizenship is a call to allegiance. It's a call to allegiance. Where do you place your primary allegiance? And I think this is really important for the church, not just us, and I th- but I think those that we interact with. Because a lot of our gospel proclamation over the last couple centuries, not centuries, decades, has emphasized Jesus as Savior. And that's good, right? This is the gospel presentation that you are a sinner in need of gracious salvation, that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, to make you right with God, that you can be justified before him. It's by his grace that you have been saved. Is that a good message? Everybody's head should be up, going up and down. Yes, that is very, very good. But the problem is, is that's what it's been almost exclusively. We've cut off that part of Philippians where it says Savior and Lord. Dallas Willard, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century when it comes to spiritual formation, says this. The greatest issue today is whether Christians will become disciples of Jesus. 
What, do, what is he trying to say? There is a very, and this is a very uniquely thing in the West in the last hundred years. That you and I have been sold a message that you can be saved from your sins, but no longer have to be aligned with Jesus as Lord. That you can get all the benefits that what Jesus did on the cross in your place for your sins, but it requires nothing else of you. You got your ticket to quote unquote heaven. Now you can go and live however you want. Is this something that I think we emphasize? No. But is it in the waters in which we swim in evangelicalism? Yes. So, and why can I say that? In our country today, 71% of people claim to be Christian. According to multiple different studies and there's different ways in which they figure out how they do this, but how, what's the percentage of people that are actually living with Jesus as Lord, as citizens of heaven, or as disciples of Jesus? All the same thing from different places. 71% claim to be Christian. According to multiple studies, about 4% of America claim to be disciples or citizens or aligned with the Lordship of Jesus. Four. Seventy-one. Four. What accounts for that 67% difference? And we wonder why people look at the Christian community and, and laugh. They claim to be Christian. They live like that. Their, their lives are no different. They, they say they have this best good news. And yet. It's not done anything in their lives. They're not wrong. I mean, this should not be like all oh, the world's mad at us for like, guys, we, the church, we kind of did it to ourselves. Now, is that true of the people in this room? I don't think so. I don't think we're as separate from uh, the the massive uh, difference. And what does it mean to be quote unquote Christian versus a disciple? We can go on and on about that, okay? But the massive difference between those that say, yeah, I'm Christian, I'm saved by grace. And then those that are actually living out the ways of Jesus. And if we go back to, yes, Jesus is Savior, but he's also, Philippians 3.20, Lord. Which means, as Lord, he has a kingdom. And as king of a kingdom, there is a way of life in which this kingdom is supposed to function. Go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.7 and you'll see a lot of stuff about what his kingdom is like. Where those who mourn are congratulated. Where those who are meek. Where it says to love your enemy. Where it says to pray for those who persecute you. Where it says to turn the other cheek. I can go on and on. But his kingdom has a way of life that when I accept him as savior, I'm now invited and challenged and now called to obey 
this way of life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he called this cheap grace. Cheap grace is where you accept the saviorness of Jesus, but not the lordship of Jesus. You get your ticket, but you don't lay down your life. You don't learn the life of generosity. Now, let me be clear. Does that happen overnight? Where you go from, yay, I'm saved, to, oh man, I'm living out the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. No. I was reminded this week by John Mark Homer that the word practice is in the beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Practice. Why is that important? Because this is a lifelong experience. It's what we call discipleship. And we define discipleship as is increasingly submitting to the lordship of Jesus in all of life. Increasingly, bit by bit, day by day, sometimes up, sometimes down, but learning what it means to be a citizen of heaven, and by heaven, the citizen of God's kingdom, more than just allowing him to be our savior, and more than placing our allegiance in other opposing kingdoms that are of this world. There's many, many different worlds, if you will, or quote unquote lower K kingdoms that are calling for your and my allegiance. The list is endless. Is it bad to be part of any of those? No. I mean, am I saying, well, if you're a citizen of heaven, you don't get to be a citizen of America. That's definitely not what I'm saying. I'm saying primary. If you had to make a choice, which would you make? Are we to be in the world? Yes. This is not a separatist message, just to be clear. But this is to say, as we go about experiencing our day-to-day, everyday, ordinary life, Am I choosing on a regular basis to live according to the standards and empowerment of the spirit that we find in the teachings of the kingdom of God? That's what I'm choosing. If it goes between being a boss who's all about making as much money for myself or learning to be generous, which am I going to choose? If it comes between how I treat my employees or if I'm an employee, how I interact with my boss, between functioning like everybody else does or according to God's kingdom, which am I going to choose? How it affects our money, how this affects our relationships, how this affects our employment, how this affects everything. I haven't thought about this, but it's just coming to my mind. And regarding money, I remember a long time ago, um, somebody used to say, I don't know who originated this, but if, and I'll use my language, if Jesus is Lord, how I spend my money will be different than my friends whose Jesus is not Lord. It's just going to be different. Why? Because I live according to a different Lord. If I've been hurt, if I've been wounded, How I interact and how I heal 
is going to be different because I submit to a different Lord. Do I think it's better than? Yes. But is it to be proved that I'm better than other people? No. It's not prideful. It's not arrogant. It's humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? And so, every area of our life, not only are we saved from the penalty and power of sin over our life, and we will be saved from the presence of sin, we now, as citizens, get to walk in this joy-filled experience of being aligned with Jesus and his kingdom. So where is your allegiance? Have you placed your faith as the, um, in Jesus as the one who is the one that gives you joy? Has he not only saved you from your sins, but is he now the Lord whose kingdom is the dominant focal point in your life? Is he the centerpiece that everything revolves around or is he kind of on the outskirts still? All of us have areas where he's still on the outskirts. None of us are fully aligned yet. We still have personal spiritual formation needs where my heart is not aligned yet. And that's the work of the spirit that we'll talk about next week because he goes on to say he's going to bring it to completion what he started. It's not done yet. We're still, all of us are um, still in process. We're loading, if you will. And this is a a regular decision that we have to make. It's a placing our faith. It's a putting our faith in. And so, is he Savior and Lord or someone or something else? Because to the Philippians, they had other options. And so do we. Is there something else in your life that you find is the most ideal? Is there a way of life or a type of person that you find more ideal than how Jesus has lived in his kingdom? Is there another answer to the problems of this world that you find more compelling than the co- what Jesus has said? Because what I would submit to all of us is he is the best possible savior He's the one who is God, who took on flesh, dwelled among us, lived an absolute perfect life, taught and proclaimed the kingdom, showcased what it means to bring death to life, literally in the resurrection of himself and others, but in the healings and the miracles, all of that was pointing to a day when all of it will be done with. Because as Lord, a day is coming for him when he will rule and reign over the world again, fully, completely doing away with sin, Satan, and death. There will be no more tears, no more pain. We will walk with renewed bodies again on this earth without sickness, pain, and death. And after having a day of 24 hours yesterday where I took five naps and I wasn't able to get out of bed, that sounds fantastic. There will be never one of those days ever again when he returns. Hallelujah. Right? But that's his lordship. And that's what he invites us into. And so with this, we're gonna, we go to the table. The table 
Communion is a weekly reminder of his saving and lordship. His body broken, his blood shed is so that we can be set free from the penalty of sin in our lives. I don't have to pay it. Jesus already paid it. I don't have to ignore my sin either because he fully knows it, fully sees it, and fully forgives it. I go to the table to remind myself and one another of that every week.